Uh, a couple of months ago, uh, my, my two oldest children, our daughters, Amy and Anna, challenged me to a game of Monopoly. Now, I paused there because I expected you to respond, but, but apparently I need to set the stage better. Um, you see, in, in my castle, which I call Smithdom, of which I am the king, I have never been defeated in a game of Monopoly, ever, in my own home. Um, real Monopoly, not these, not these you know, made for the, the, the modern generation that can't really afford losing without crying and can't commit more than 10 minutes of attention span to anything. You know, not like Monopoly Junior and Monopoly Express and Monopoly for Crybabies or whatever. I'm talking real Monopoly. I have never been defeated. So when I say that my children challenge me to a game of Monopoly, it would be very appropriate for your response to be like, oh no. Okay, so let's try that. Your response is, oh no. Okay, so my children uh, challenge me to a game of Monopoly. Good, you understand. (laughs) Being the good father that I am, uh, of course I had to accept their challenge. Now, um, they, they thought, there's a couple things you need to know about this game. Um, they thought if they don't use the standard version of Monopoly, the one that I grew up with and made sure that we bought, because no one gave it to us for our wedding, I don't know what they were thinking, so I made sure we bought the board game early, and matter of fact, I even have old money from the set I grew up with. So we've got like these new beautiful and then we've got these old ugly bills, but we mix them all together. They thought instead of using the classic game, they would challenge me to the electronic edition. Um, I accepted their challenge because the electronic, it's not a sissy game. Um, you, can, you play it like the regular one. It's just everything's electronic. You have a little card, you slide in the ATM, and instead of having cash, okay. So, so I accepted their challenge, and, the, and I said I'd be glad to play them. The other thing you probably should know about this game is that uh, it took place while I was on vacation last, so we had plenty of time. There was no need to shorten the game through these rules that are designed to make the game faster. We were going to play this game, and they knew this going into this. We were going to play this game to the bitter for them end. Okay, so we start our Monopoly game, and uh, as usually happens with Monopoly, it's a slow start. I mean, any Monopoly lovers in the house? All right, good. I'm going to have to invite you over so I can defeat you all, too. Um, We started. It was a slow start. We were having fun. You know, dad and his two daughters, and we were playing, and probably a little bit of trash talking, and just just being together as a family. And we had played for a couple of hours when uh, it came time for a family campfire. We had decided earlier in the day we were going to do that, and it was now getting to the time where where we should probably stop and, and move to the campfire. So being the gracious dad that I am, well in the lead, I offered both of my daughters the opportunity to gracefully surrender. All they would have to do is say, I think I'm going to cash out now. And, uh, and they could have walked away without being embarrassed. Um, I think I even took like a napkin from the napkin holder on the dining room table and said, all you have to do is wave this and it's over. And uh, neither one of them were ready to wave the white flag of surrender. So that was fine. We, uh, we, I took pictures of the board. Um, you know, so that nobody thought I was cheating when I win. And, uh, and we went to the, the campfire. So the next day we came back. And when we come into round two of, of this game of Monopoly, um, I'm in the lead. And, and there's no embellishment, by the way. I, I got this story approved with my daughters. I told them the story last night as I'm telling it tonight. I said, if there's any embellishment here, tell me and I'll change it. And um, there was none to change. So I'm well in the lead. And uh, Amy's in second place. Anna is in the place that makes first and second possible. Well, partway through round two, um, there's a huge shift. Amy lands on one of my properties that I've got, um, you know, stacked to the hilt, and uh, she has to start mortgaging properties to pay rent. And so at that point, Anna takes the lead uh, with the second place. I'm still in the lead. Let's not mistake that. But at that point, I said to Amy, Amy, chances are your game's over. I mean, you can probably go a couple more times around the board, but if you'd like if you'd like to surrender now, that's fine. We won't make fun of you. We'll totally understand. You can go and do whatever you want. And, and um, Amy has her dad's personality. And she refused to surrender. Um, she, she insisted that she was going to play this game to the end and even come back and beat me. 
Um, so, fine, we continued to play. And, and sure enough, a couple more times around the board, and Amy was out. And so I looked at Anna at that point, and I said, well, Anna, it's just down to me and you, and, and you survived this long, and that's good, but you, you're nowhere close to, to winning. You don't, even, you don't even have a set of properties. You can't put houses on the board. Why don't you just surrender now? And she wouldn't do it. It turns out Anna has a personality like her mother, who won't play Monopoly with me because she can't win. And, uh, and so we went on, and I defeated her bitterly, too. Um, but when given the opportunity, neither of my daughters would surrender. And I wonder how many, in li- how many times in life we all come to a crossroads where we know the best thing is to surrender, but we just can't bring ourselves to do it. It's funny and ultimately meaningless when it happens in a, in a board game. But there's times in life when it matters. When, a, when, it's, when it's a relationship and, and we just can't bring ourselves to let it go. We know it would be healthier to let it go. We know it would make other relationships in our life stronger, but we just can't let go of that relationship. Or something happens in the life of our, of our children and we know that by trying to control it and trying to hang on and be emotionally tied up in it, we're only going to make ourselves and our children miserable, but we just can't surrender. Or our will headbutts God's will and, and uh, we just can't, we can't bring ourselves to, to bow our head and bow our knee to the will of our Heavenly Father. There's crossroads that we come to in life where the best choice is to surrender. And if I, had to, if I had to guess as I look across this room today, I would guess that there are some here today who stand at a crossroads and you know that the best step for you, the best next step is surrender. It's time to say, um, I'm not my own, I'm yours alone, God. This is not my life, it's yours. I'll do what you've asked me to do. But it's not an easy thing to do. And so too many times we don't. That's what this sermon series is about. When we stand at that intersection. And on the one hand, we have what we've been doing and what we want to do and our will and our way. And on the other hand, we have surrender. And will we do it? And we're looking at, we're looking at some various characters in the Bible, men and women who came to that intersection and said, I'll surrender. I will hear you, God, and I will do what you're asking me to do. Today, specifically, we're going to look at Elijah, and we're going to look at what we do when we come to a crossroads with our children, whether it's, uh, whether it's our children who are still at home, maybe elementary age or junior high or high school age, our, our children who are off to or going off to college, or, or maybe it's our adult children and, and, and even grandchildren. What do we do when we stand at an intersection? There's something going on in their life that we can't control. We can't fix. We can't go through it for them. How do we respond? What do we do? How do we surrender to God that situation and our children. So we're going to look at a story from the life of Elijah and, and, uh, and, and see a, a, a description and maybe some prescription for how God would say to us, um, this is how you surrender at those difficult points in life when you can't control what's happening in the life of your children. We're going to be in 1 Kings 17 today. I invite you to take your text and turn there. If you forgot your text or you feel more comfortable on the note sheet, it's also printed on the insert in the bulletin. Um, You can read along there. While you're turning, um, in like the next 30 seconds, just tell me out loud, talk to me, and you're going to have to be loud so I can hear you. What do you remember about the prophet Elijah? I already gave you one thing. Elijah was a prophet. What else do you remember about Elijah's life? Anybody? You have to be loud. I, I hear something, but I didn't hear what it was. Just if you're wrong, it's no big deal. I won't tell you you're wrong. He, yeah, he didn't die. Um, he didn't die. He, he was taken off to heaven in a, in a chariot of, of fire or so, something just grand and majestic. Yes, good. He, say what? The fight? Did you say the fight on the mountain? 
fire on the altar, which is part of the fight on the mountain. It was like the, um, the, 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 the rumble in the jungle or something. Uh, uh, showdown between Elijah and these prophets of a false god. We often say Baal. It's actually pronounced Baal. And they have a showdown on Mount Carmel, and, and uh, they can't get their god to, to send fire. And, and uh, Elijah says, listen, my god's going to send fire. So dig a trench, fill it with water, um, take those 12 water jars over there, pour them over the sacrifice, and I'm going to pray. And he prays, and boom, the whole thing evaporated. Fire falls, and just powerful, incredible. What else do you remember about Elijah? He was bald? Um, I think you're thinking of Elisha, who uh, once, when some teenagers were making fun of him for being bald, he called bears out of the woods, and the bears ate them. Um, Elisha was Elijah's protege, but names are close enough, so um, watch it. I am a Bears fan. He was very obedient, absolutely. He fed by the ravens, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we're going to get to that. That's good. So there's, there's these interesting stories about Elijah, just fascinating. He was uh, two figures that stand out from the Old Testament are Moses and Elijah. Those two appeared with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, Elijah was a key in the Old Testament. The, the covenant prosecutor is what theologians call him. He was the one who came to Israel at their worst and said, this is what God expects of you. Do it or pay the price. This is Elijah. Um, Elijah doesn't appear on the scene or doesn't become part of the story until chapter 17, which is where we start today. We're going to start at verse 7, but what you need to know is in the first six verses, Elijah stands before the king of Israel. His name was King Ahab, and he says, listen, King Ahab, there will be no rain or dew in this land because you are a wicked king, which is totally crazy. Why Why would God send a drought on his people? Well, the answer is actually scriptural. God had promised the people when he led them out of slavery in Egypt and when he gave them the law, the the guidelines in which they were to live, he said, if you turn to other gods, I will send no rain or dew in your land. And so by this point in Israel's history, they have completely turned away from Yahweh, the God that led them out of slavery in Egypt and gave them the promised land. And they began to worship this fake God. Specifically, the one we're talking about here is Baal. And King Ahab has led the charge. So Elijah stands before him and says, no rain or dew again until, until I say so. When God says I can say so, it'll rain again. It'd be good to repent at this point. And then, uh, and then God sends Elijah off. He says, get out of here. Don't stay before the king. I want you to go to another part of the country, and I want you just to live by this ravine, and I'll take care of you there. And, uh, and sure enough, uh, once the brook dries up, uh, because there's no rain or dew, uh, ravens start to, to bring him food. And, and Elijah lives there, uh, protected and provided for by God. So that's kind of where we pick up in verse 7. Follow along as I read. What we're going to do is, as you read through this, I'm going to make some comments, draw some of your attention to some things. And then once we've read through it, we'll look at three three realities about surrendering our children. 1 Kings 17, verse 7. Some time later, and we don't know how long, um, we know from the New Testament that this drought lasted three and a half years. And we know from chapter 18 that, that what happened there um, happened in the third year of the drought. So maybe what we're going to read today happens somewhere around the end of year one, beginning of year two. So there's been a drought for a while. This isn't, this isn't new. So sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, and stay there. Now, we don't know this geography, and I didn't, I'm, I'm not as cool as Pastor Joel, so I don't have a, a map for us. Um, but essentially, here's what you need to know the, the Zarephath in the region of Sidon is not in Israel, it's actually up uh, to the north of Israel. And so it might be if God, like if God said to us, I want you to go to Canada, and I want you to find um, because Sidon, Zarephath was right in the heart of the worship of this false god, Baal. And I want you to go to Canada, and I want you to find this uh, cell of ISIS extremists, and just stay there with them for a while, okay? That's kind of what's happening here. This is the call that God gives to Elijah. 
So I want you to go to Zarephath in the region of Sidon where they worship Baal and, and everything that we're against. I want you to stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. Now this is incredible. Uh, we, we, we just read verse 8, go, or verse 9, go at once to Zarephath. Now, does that sound familiar? Last week, God said to Abraham, I want you to go and Abraham... And Abraham, yes, good. And so here, look what happens with Elijah, verse 10. So Elijah went to Zarephath. God said, I want you to go, and Elijah went. If you're struggling with surrender in any area of your life, whether it's the the areas we're talking about today or the ones we'll talk through the rest of this series, if you're struggling with surrender, I would guess that in general, You struggle with obedience. These two characteristics go hand in hand in God's people who are willing to surrender when he says to. They're obedient, immediately obedient. Verse 10, so Elijah went to Zarephath. Then when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink. As she was going to get it, he called out after her, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. Verse 12, as surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. So when he asks for water, no problem. But when he asks for bread, that's when he gets the life story. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think that this woman, just based on what we read and what I've told you about where she lives, do you think this woman is a a follower of Yahweh, a believer in God? I hear a yes. Anybody want to disagree? No, we we don't disagree in church, Pastor. Well, you're free to disagree because you'd actually be right. Um, I don't believe she is a a follower of God, and and here's why I say that. Notice what she said to Elijah. As surely as the Lord, does she say as surely as the Lord our God or my God lives? Right, as surely as the Lord your God lives. So I think there's a sense that she's not, and and we're going to see a little bit more in the story later, Greg, that I'm sure if you had the whole story would change your mind, but... um, we have this sense that she's not a follower of God. But she does, she does recognize that Elijah is someone special. She realizes apparently that he's from Israel. She recognizes him as a prophet, someone who bears a special word from the Lord and, uh, and is willing to, to respond to his requests. She's willing to um, obey, as we see in the next verse, 15. She went away and did as Elijah had told her, actually, let me, let me go back to verse 13. I jump forward. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me that, that, uh, from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. So I don't, I don't believe she's a follower of God, but notice she obeys, verse 15. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. I want to I pause here. I want us to catch the full weight of this. So here we have a woman who is not a follower of God. And yet, when she obeys, God provides for her. When she's willing to obey a word from the Lord, it goes well for her. You've heard me say, and you'll hear me say more, that that to choose to sin is to choose to suffer. But the flip side of that coin is also true that when you choose to obey, when you choose obedience, you choose blessing. And that's not just for the people of God. 
Perhaps that's one of the reasons that we as as Christians who live in America, why it's good and healthy and okay for us to say things like, um, God bless America, or maybe America bless God. You see, America doesn't have to be a Christian nation to live as God has designed humans to live. And, And when we do, whether we're followers of Christ or not, when you choose obedience, you choose Blessing and the widow figured that out. She obeyed and, and her son didn't die and the flower didn't run out, nor did the oil. Verse 17. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. So we're talking about the same people here. The widow, her son is now ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. The widow said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin? And kill my son? We're going to come back to this response in a few minutes, but let me just ask you this question. Do you think that before she said to Elijah, have you come to kill my son? That she paused long enough to remember that when she first encountered Elijah out by the town gate, she was baking their last meal so they could eat it and in her own words and then die? That before she encountered Elijah, she had maybe a few days left with her son. But because Elijah came and she was obedient to the word of the Lord, she's had another year with her son. I suspect that she didn't think of that before she started pointing the finger. And I suspect that too often the same thing happens with us. When we hit a tragedy, when something happens in the life of our children... Before we start pointing the finger, uh, we probably ought to stop and do the math, but we don't too often. Verse 19, give me your child, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him up to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son To die. So even Elijah apparently didn't know or understand what was going on. Verse 21 Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. And so, like God so often does, he uses a crisis to get the attention of this this widow who was not a follower of God. And he comes through in a huge way to say to her, if you will live obediently obediently to me, you choose to live in blessing. And, and, And notice how she responds. Notice how she responds to what's happened here. Verse 24, then the woman said to Elijah, now, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is truth. What an absolutely incredible encounter between Elijah, this woman who didn't know God and and yet obeyed, whose son was going to die, was saved, and she acknowledged the truth of who God is. And at the focal point of this is this boy who becomes ill, ill unto death. I, wanna, I just want to highlight for us three things um, about surrendering when our, surrendering our children to God, but especially at times like this, when, when they're way out of our control. Number one, deepest pain is watching your children go through difficult times. There's a lot of things in life that cause pain. I was just talking with, uh, with Larry before worship, and we were talking about a mutual friend who's losing her mom to cancer. You know, those times are gut-wrenching and painful. But until you watch something happen in your children's life that you can do absolutely nothing about, It's hard to imagine how difficult that is. It's one of the greatest pains in life. So painful that God the Father had to turn his own face away as he watched his son 
suffer on the cross. This pain cuts through everything, every experience, and touches the heart of every parent. We get that picture in, in verse 17. You'll notice it says that the boy grew ill. Now, for sure, in this story, this is about a physical illness. The boy is growing physically ill, and, and, uh, and, and we learn unto death. But this, this, this word here that, um, uh, that the writer uses is an interesting word. It's used all kinds of ways throughout the Old Testament. It's used of people who are physically ill, uh, their, their weakness or some kind of disease or sickness that is going to cause them to die. It's, it's even used of intense exhaustion. But this word is also used to, uh, to talk in the Old Testament about emotional illness, this, this sense of grief or depression and even regret. It's a word that's used in the Old Testament spiritual realities. Uh, it talks about people becoming apathetic to, to their God, and, and the writers use this word that's used here for ill. It's used when people have been wounded by others, when people have been boneheads and brought their own pains on, on themselves. This word is used in the Old Testament. And, it, and it's even used in the Old Testament to convey a sense of never being able to be good enough. This word is a is a huge word, and I stop here because some of you may say today, you know what, I'm going to unplug. My kid's not ill. There's, there's no cancer. There's no disease. There's no sickness going on. I'm not sure this applies to me, but, but the reality is this story does apply to all of us as parents because at some point, our child is going to face something that is out of our control, that we can't deal with, we can't handle, we can't helicopter parent our way through. Um, Maybe it's, maybe it's an issue of being bullied at school, and, and, and they, they insist that we not do anything about it. Mom, Dad, I can't have my dad show up and protect me. What's going to happen then? Or, uh, or, or maybe as they grow older or, or even um, as they grow into teenagers, they begin to have this sense like, I'm not really what Mom and Dad wanted. They had hoped for a girl, and, well, I'm a boy. Or they wanted a football player, and man, I would rather sit and read. Or they were hoping for someone who was outgoing and funny, but I'm just really recharged by being in my room and writing in my journal. I mean, sure, as parents, we love them, and no doubt you've told them that time and time again, but, but they just maybe kind of have this sense like, I don't know if I can ever measure up. Or... Um, Maybe they're at college, and they begin to struggle with their sexuality, and they're not sure anymore. They don't know if they're attracted to, to boys or girls, and, and maybe they're even starting to buy into this lie that the, that, that the hardware they were born with it doesn't really represent their gender. They're, and they were, they were born, born with boy parts, but you know, maybe, maybe they're not really a boy. And they kind of start to struggle with this whole culturally acceptable sense of what is my gender and, and who, who do I love? Who am I attracted to? Or maybe they're just being a bonehead. They're doing stupid things. And they're hurting their wife and their children and their family and there's nothing we can do about it. They've turned their back on Jesus and they've walked away from the church. The reality is that so many parents deal with children who are struggling with things that are out of the parents' control. As I look across this congregation today, I see more faces of parents who are saying, this is real, Pastor Earl. This is a real struggle in my life. And, and if you only knew what we were dealing with. And we have a sense that, that it's not easy, that, that, that struggling with something out of our control is bad, but, but oftentimes it goes like this story does, like the story we read, and, and, it, and it, it goes from bad to worse. Notice what it says in, in verse 17. Uh, he was ill, and then, and then it, it got worse and worse. And, uh, and so we do everything we can for a kid. We get him a counselor, but the depression only gets 
relationships. We, uh, we model tough love because that's what we need to do. And, and they still continue to rebel and walk away. And, and, um, and, and then and no matter the long talks we've had with them, the Bible studies and, and sermons we've sent them, and they still announce that they're, uh, they're going to choose a homosexual lifestyle. or um, They know that divorce is wrong. And they decide still to file the paperwork. And they just continue to walk further and further from Jesus. And the pain, the pain is more than we as parents can bear. But there's nothing we can do. It's the most helpless place we've ever been in our lives. And what do we do? I'll tell you what not to do, and then we'll talk about what to do. When it comes to surrender, surrendering our children, blame only makes it worse. Blame only makes it worse. Notice what this woman's response is when her son grows ill and then gets worse and worse. Verse 18, she, she blames Elijah. She says, Elijah, what do you have against me? She blames God. Man of God, what's happening here? She even blames herself. Have you come to remind me of my sin and punish me by killing my child? You know what? I think if we're to be honest, the reality is that most of us can relate to this knee-jerk reaction to to blame. I can remember sitting with a, a man from another congregation several years back. His adult son had recently announced that he was uh, going to live a homosexual lifestyle. And I remember sitting with this man, and, and in tears, he says to me, when he was a kid, he had such a weird laugh. And he was always just doing like these weird things. And I would always say to him, son, quit acting so gay. And the father said, maybe if I hadn't have said that. You know, the reality is we're quick to blame. If we're not quick to blame others, often we're quick to blame ourselves. And this is a tricky line to walk. Because there is a sense that as parents, we're not perfect. I'm not. Someday my, my kids will probably need to see a counselor because they could never beat me at Monopoly. And I always rubbed it in their face, even in front of the church. I mean, we all make mistakes. And, and there's a sense that if I'd just done maybe a little, if I'd have worked fewer hours or if I'd have done this or that differently, maybe they'd have turned out differently. And yet blame never gets us anywhere. And I don't believe blame is how God intends for us to, to look at this. There's, there's, there's a reality that, that what's going on in your children's life isn't a punishment for something you've done wrong. I mean, Scripture is clear on this. Yes, God punishes sin. Make no doubt about it. And yes, the patterns in your life, if you're a serial divorce, divorcee, Chances are your children are going to wrestle with that. Those things are clear in Scripture, but, but Jesus makes it very clear that our, our children don't face hardships in life as a punishment for our sin. As a matter of fact, in the book of John, chapter 9, Jesus is ministering one day, and he comes across a man who was born blind. And his disciples say to him, Jesus, this guy was born blind. Well, who sinned? that caused this man to be born blind? Did, did, did he sin, like, in the womb? Or did, his, did one of his parents sin that, that God punished them with blindness? And you know what Jesus' response was? Nobody sinned to make him blind. His blindness isn't the result of his parents' sin. This man was born blind because God has a plan to glorify himself through this. And too many times we start to blame and point fingers. And, and, and if, we, if we would stop, we might hear the Spirit saying, God's going to be glorified through this. Stop blaming. Stop pointing fingers. Understand, our Heavenly Father might say, my default position towards you isn't judgment in this life. It's grace. I mean, for sure, God punishes sin. Scripture's clear on that. But when God deals with our sin on this side of eternity, he always does it through the filter of grace. Hebrews says that, the, that, that God disciplines the ones he loves. 
And so when he does discipline us, it's not vindictively to get even. It's, it's to move us back onto the path where he would have us walk, to move us back into his will. When God does discipline us, it's through grace, not judgment, not this side of eternity. Blame doesn't get us anywhere. When you start looking for someone to blame, be careful. While your eyes are looking around for someone to blame, they can't be fixed on Jesus. The only one who can bring the Father glory out of whatever your child is facing. So what do I do? How do I surrender my child to God when they're facing something out of my control, out of our control? Let me talk about some clear actions you can take in the surrender process. First of all, you must remember that your child's only hope is resurrection life. Your child's only hope is resurrection life. Too often we look for the solution. We, 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 we try to, to bring reconciliation to the marriage. If we can just help them go on a, on a romantic weekend and recapture the love they had at first, then, then they won't go through with the divorce. Well, maybe. But it means nothing if Jesus Christ isn't the Lord of their lives. It means nothing if they're not captured by the fact that Jesus Christ died for their sins and came to restore their relationship with God first and their relationship with others Second, notice what Elijah did when, when the widow came and said, uh, my son is sick and this is your fault. Uh, he took the boy, it says, up to his room, up to Elijah's room, and he laid him on the bed and three times he cried out to God. Look at your text. What did he pray? Lord, my God, comfort this grieving mother. Is that what your text says? Lord, my God, please send a doctor with medicine. Is that what your text says? Okay. How about, Lord, my God, we need a good counselor right now. No. What does Elijah cry out to the Lord? Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. Which is kind of like when I started with the Monopoly story. We're all like, oh, man, the Baptists are going to beat us to the buffet again. Doggone it. Listen, this is huge. I told you last week that the book of Hebrews told us that Abraham believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead, even though Abraham had never seen it before. Do you remember that little conversation, those who were here? Part B. No one in Scripture up to this point had ever been raised from the dead. When Elijah prays, let this boy's life return to him, he's praying for something he's never seen and can only imagine, and even then only barely. He prays for life like he's never seen. He prays for a life that he can only imagine. And this is perhaps the greatest thing that we can pray, that we can remember, that we can do for our children when they face something out of our control or out of their control, that God would raise them to life, to real life. Pray the big prayer. Don't just pray that the divorce wouldn't happen. Pray that reconciliation would happen, that God would set their marriage on fire, and that, that in 10 years together they would be ministering to other couples who are going through rough times in marriage and are ready to, to call it quits. Don't just pray that they would renounce this homosexual lifestyle. Pray that, the whole, pray that the Holy Spirit would work in them in such a way that they would give their entire life to Jesus Christ and that perhaps they too would be able to lead others away from this lie. Pray for resurrection life. Pray for the miracle that you can only imagine and then only bearable. And let the Spirit of God do his work. The, 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 number two, you must cry out on behalf of your child. Cry out on behalf of your child. This is exactly what Elijah did and it's exactly what we must do too. Listen, surrender doesn't mean I throw my hands up in the air and say, okay, I'm done, God. It's yours. You take care of it. I'm done. I'm walking away. That's not what surrender is. Surrender is, this is my child. And I know that first they were your child, and so 
um, I'm not going to hold on. I'm not going to clench. I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I am going to continue to pray because I understand as I pray for my child, as I pray for this need, it's an act of surrender. I'm acknowledging verbally that I am not in control, that this is your child, your will be done. You've got to continue to cry out for your child. And for some of you, that's the only thing you ought to be doing. Not meddling, not sending emails, not tagging them and obnoxious memes on Facebook. You ought to be just crying out to God and finding other people to cry out with you. That's exactly what the widow did with Elijah. She couldn't handle this. This was too big for her. She needed someone to come alongside and cry out with her. And some of you do too. For some of you, it's time to break the silence about the heartache that you're going through and to find someone that you can trust. Not just your pastors, although we're happy to walk with you, but someone from your church family who's been down the road or maybe is walking the road now and can cry out with you on behalf of your child. Finally, you must give your child to the Lord Notice verse 19, Elijah said, give me your child. This was God's summons to this widow through Elijah's vocal cords. Give me your child. And this is what God says to us. Give me your child. If you're not facing one of these issues now, if your time hasn't come yet, you don't know the pain that we've been talking about now. Surrender your child to me. Open your hands. Let me guide their life so when that, that, that time comes, you don't have to pry your fingers open. If you're in the middle of it now, God says, give me your child. Surrender them back to me. Open your hands. Let me be God. Let me be glorified in their life in the way that I've determined should happen. God's call to you is give me your child. As we said earlier today, God gives us children as a wonderful, beautiful gift. And he hopes and expects that we'll give them right back to him. That we'll love them and care for them and raise them and nurture them and teach them how to live and how to love Jesus and follow Jesus. But that it'll all be from a position of surrender that says they're yours, God, not mine. It was a brisk autumn morning in 2005. I had just returned from a morning run, and uh, I had Amy, who was three at the time, sitting at the dining room table, and Anna, who was not yet one, sitting in her high chair, and they were both eating breakfast, and Sarah was in the shower, and I was just doing some food prep. So I'd put a tea kettle on the stove to boil some water for oatmeal, and uh, was, was getting some stuff ready for my lunch that I would take to work. And, and all the while, just kind of listening to the girl, you know, Anna, Amy talking and Anna making noises and gnawing on her fruit. And, and just, just kind of listening for the teapot. And, and my back was turned to the stove and the girls when the teapot finally made a noise. But it wasn't the whistle I had hoped for. Instead of it, was a, it was a loud pop and then insane screaming. And I whipped around and I looked at Anna, my, my 10-month-old daughter, and um, it was ugly. The teapot had exploded. Um, she was far enough away from the stove, we thought, but apparently not for boiling water. Flew across, it hit the left side of her face, and literally she had melting skin running down her face and, and her arm, and she was screaming like I'd never heard before. And Amy's freaking out, trying to get my attention, and trying to know what's going on, and Sarah's running out of the bathroom and trying to figure out what all the commotion is about, and I'm just, I have no idea what to do. And so my first response, by God's grace, was to, to grab my cell phone, and I called one of our youth sponsors in the youth group at the time, who worked as a med flight nurse, and I told her what had happened, and I said, should I just take her to the hospital, or should I call an ambulance? Which kind of seems like a silly question, right? The thing is, we lived in a, in a, uh, a suburb of Peoria, the town, the village where we lived was called Morton, and um, the nearest hospital was about a 20 to 25 minute drive, it was in Peoria, and there was no, at the time, ambulances that serviced Morton, or that they serviced Morton, but they didn't reside in Morton. And so if you're to call an ambulance, you're waiting for them to come to Peoria, pick you up, and then take you back to the hospital. I'm going, my daughter's skin is melting off her face. What do I do? Do I wait? And she said, no, put her in the car and take her to the hospital. So I thanked her. I said, call some of the other youth sponsors and let them know what's happening, and please start praying. 
So uh, I loaded Anna into, into my minivan, and um, I'm just trying to get to the hospital as fast as I can. And uh, the, uh, the front seat of the van is, is far enough back, even though I have long arms, I can't really, like I can't really feel Anna's heart. Like the only thing I can do is kind of grab her ankle. And so, so I'm sitting there like half turned around, you know, one hand on the wheel, trying to look both ways and, you know, just trying to console her and comfort her because she's screaming like crazy and, and, and just trying to get to the hospital as fast as I can. About halfway there, I have to cross the bridge that, that takes you from Morton to Peoria. And about halfway across that bridge, silence from the back. No more screaming, no more crying, not even any breathing. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. So I'm like swatting, I'm like swatting at my daughter like, wake up, Anna, you've got to wake up. You're not going to die on the bridge on the way to the hospital. And I'm crying out to God, God, save my daughter. You've got to do something. I mean, she's yours and, and you could do whatever you want, but don't let her die, God. And, 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 and finally she gasps and she starts screaming again. And, and the reality is that for many of us today, it seems like what our children is facing is a matter of life and death. And the only response at a time like that is to surrender to God, our child. To say, she's yours, God. He's yours, God. Do what you want. Do what you want. Please spare them, but do what you want. And some of you in here have never Never crossed that bridge where, where you've came to the point where you fully opened your hand and said, my child is yours. And some of you have done it so many times, you feel like, how can my hand be open any further? And yet the reality with surrender is that it's not just a one-time thing. It's, uh, it's like rungs on a ladder. We have to do it again and again and again. And so as we close today, I'd like to invite you today, if you're saying, you know what, I'm at a crossroads and I need to surrender my children. I, I hear God saying, give me your child and, and I'm ready to do it or I'm, I need to do it again and I'm willing. I'm going to ask you just to come and pray. I'm going to ask Sarah to join me down here and, and we, we're going to, again, renew our commitment to surrender. And I'm going to invite you today, if that's where you're at, would you come and, and pray with us, please? We're not going to sing a song. This isn't going to be some kind of emotional plea. If you're here saying, this is what I need to do, would you come now and would you pray with us? Father, your people gather today to acknowledge that you are God. You are sovereign over all. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of our children. And we open our hands. And we say, God, would you be glorified in their lives, in what they're facing now, in what is coming down the road and will soon greet them. We love them and we'll continue to to raise them, we'll continue to care for them, we'll continue to give our all for them as our children, but they are yours, Father. And so you be God and you be glorified and you do in their lives what you need to do to bring resurrection life front and center. Father, we trust you and we cry out to you and ask you to be God. And we ask for your strength, Father, to continue to surrender. We know that it's more than a trip to the front of the sanctuary. 
to say our children are yours. We know that this is important, but that there's going to be other moments, other days, other weeks, other seasons where we just want to reclench our fist around the lives of our child. We want to have control. And so, so, Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would help us to remain surrendered, to keep our hands open, to continue to cry out for our children and to trust you. And Father, I ask that you would bring alongside of, um, of parents, others who can pray with them, who can cry out with them on behalf of their children. For the parents here who haven't shared with others because of a perceived uh, shame or regret or they blame themselves or they're afraid of what someone else is going to say, by your spirit today, would you give them a boldness and a humility and a trust would you bring to their names uh, perhaps just one other couple that they could go and they could talk to, they could pour their heart out before, uh, another couple that would walk alongside them and cry out for their child? And Father, would you make us a people who are surrendered completely to you in all areas of our life that we're immediately obedient and when we sense your spirit prompting us, we respond. Father, we love you. We thank you for the stories of those who have gone on before us, for their examples of obedience and surrender. And we say, make us like them for your glory, Father. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, who surrendered perfectly to the will of his heavenly Father and is resurrected and lives forever, interceding for us. Amen. Stand to our feet, shall we, as I pronounce a blessing over us. Quick reminder, read your bulletin for informational items. We will be offering opportunity for you to be trained in how to minister at the altar as we had an, an altar call today. Let's extend our hands one to another. Rather than placing blame on yourself, on the Lord, or on other people regarding your kids, may you place your faith in Jesus, trusting him for their lives. Amen. You may go in peace.